With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following episode of Bread for the People is brought to you by Side Hustle Bread, Long Island's handcrafted artisanal bread company. Side Hustle Bread is a family-run virtual bakery that's bringing the neighborhood feel back to Long Island one loaf at a time. Head on over to SideHustleBread.com for more information, upcoming appearances, and merchandise. My name's Jim Serpico, and this... Should I start with my name? Or should I start with this is Bread for the People? Do you like it like this? Welcome to Bread. Or do you like it like this? Welcome. Ready? Welcome to Bread for the People. Mine... Is there a script? Welcome to Bread for the People. I'm Jim Serpico. My guest today is a Brooklyn-based writer, recipe developer, and food stylist. She specializes or likes to help people make recipes on a budget. Please welcome Rebecca Ferkser. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. I had to rehearse the Ferk. (laughs) I did. You did a great job. Everybody, everybody <laughs> tends to, to mess it up. We're, we're still not sure K and S are just never next to each other in words, I suppose, but you did a beautiful job. <laughs> I appreciate it came out right the first time because even though I practiced saying it many times, once in a while I transpose the letters, um, I have to start with this. What is Taylor Ham and what would it be used for? <laughs> I'm so glad you started with this. Um, <laughs> So I'm, I'm from New Jersey. I'm from Northern New Jersey specifically. And Taylor ham is, is the brand of Taylor pork roll. If you're in Southern New Jersey, you'd say pork roll. If you're in Northern New Jersey, you'd say Taylor ham. Um, if you're in central Jersey, I have no idea what the hell you would say. (laughs) Um, it's a breakfast meat for lack of a better word. It's like kind of like mortadella, but you'd, you'd slice it. It's like, thinner than mortadella it's more like like a small salami like somewhere not like the big deli salami but like you know three inches four inches wide and circumference um and you put it on a taylor ham egg and cheese sandwich well now now you you, you've hit a nerve because i now (laughs) i have seen it on menus and i've had sure you have it is yeah now i realize it's a breakfast ham and I, yeah, I could, it's kind I of like it. a Canadian bacon moment, but it's, you know, New Jerseyans find it to right. be something to defend. And it's best served charred to bring out the smokiness, isn't it? Y- yes, absolutely. You have to cut three score marks 
into the slice of ham and then you sear it in the skillet and then it kind of shrivels up a little bit, but that's how you cook it evenly and you get yeah. a little char on the edge and it's, it's perfect. I like it with maple syrup, which is disgusting, but in my opinion, <laughs> ah. <that's> delicious. <laughs> right. Probably you've got some cross contamination from the French toast or the pancakes exactly. and you got used to the flavor, right? Yeah, exactly. Sweet that's and salty. I'm all about it. I should try. I should try to do something with bread and Taylor ham. Oh, you definitely should. Like kind of like a lard bread moment. Um, exactly. That lard bread, by the way, is my specialty. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. We can, we yeah. can talk. I, I, I'm, I'm Italian and Jewish and from New Jersey. So, so like, am I. I, I oh, love it. I mean, Italian <laughs> like breads and meats are a thing that I could talk about for hours and hours and hours. Um, I'll keep, well, I let's dive into it. Bread, yeah. Lard bread with Taylor ham. Yeah. I, I really lard, hope you do it. <laughs> so, uh, actually the other thing we just made, we made a lot of them were the, uh, pizza rustica. We mm. used Virginia ham, yes. but I am developing a version of the, the pizza rustica. You know what it is? I, be I believe I do. It's a, like a ricotta pie. It's, it's yeah. got several different cheeses. It's got like the, it's like, it's like sh they're thick, right? It's like a, yeah. Isn't yeah. it also called Easter pie? Yes. Sometimes, right? Ex that's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, I, maybe I'm going to embarrass myself by thinking it's the wrong no, thing. No, no, but, no. <laughs> oh, but we are developing one for uh, a restaurant for breakfast for like oh, a quiche because yeah. it's very much like a quiche. Yeah, and, uh, totally. Maybe we do the Taylor ham in there. I would order I it. I like it. <laughs> that's so cool. So you do a lot of things. Uh, I, I also do yeah. a lot of things. <laughs> it's the best way, I think, to avoid boredom. I, I, I constantly like, like this morning, I'm working on a new sandwich bread that's similar to focaccia. And I saw your focaccia mm. the other day. It looked pretty awesome. <laughs> so I spent a few hours on that. So it's cooling. Mm -hmm. Then uh, I go into this for an hour. And then I go back into my television development for a couple hours. And I'll go back to yeah. the bread and try to create the sandwich and shoot some photos of it. Yep. I like bouncing I around. You got, you got to bounce around. I'm, I'm in the process of text, testing uh, Thanksgiving recipes. So I've got my, my bread drying out for stuffing, made the cranberry sauce, half the mashed potatoes. And then after this, we'll go finish the stuffing and prep the turkey. That's so cool. So tell us <laughs> why you're doing that. It is, we're recording this in April. <laughs> it is April. It is 78 degrees in Brooklyn today. Yeah. So I really, yeah. I really picked the best possible day to do it. I always seem to test Thanksgiving recipes on like the hottest days of the year. So, so I, in food media, um, Thanksgiving, you know, obviously Thanksgiving's in November, but it's kind of like the food media Olympics. So it needs to happen as early as possible to make sure that everything is, you know, completely airtight, tested, developed, shot, edited, um, you know, if you're working in a magazine, printed um, at as early as possible so that you can forego any calamities. But um, I, this is a little early. You, usually Thanksgiving tends to happen more in the summer um, when it's even hotter in New York. I'm actually developing some recipes for, for a cookbook right now. So it, it's, it's very, very early. Um, so that is why the, the recipe deadline is May is the middle of May. So we, we gotta, we gotta get to it. <laughs> That's why it's All right. this early. 
There's a lot of information I'm picking up in that response that I'd like to try to unpack. <laughs> all right. First of all, the, the cookbook recipes mm-hmm. that you're developing, are they mm-hmm. being developed for a cookbook of yours? Or are you helping someone out? I, I am helping someone out. I'm, I'm working with um, an author who uh, has a book deal and she has, you know, just incredible palate, you know, very well-versed in the world of food, but is not a technical recipe developer. So in, in the world of cookbooks, there are many different ways that you can break down the work. And in this particular iteration, I have been brought on as a recipe developer to kind of see the author's vision come to life in recipes that can actually be made by home cooks. So an author would say, uh, let's say, I don't know what kind of food it is. I was trying to use me as the analogy, (laughs) but it might be too difficult because it's very specifically to to bread. But um, are they coming to you with like an idea and an area? And then you're, you're coming up with like the specifics. This is, we're breaking it down into grams, the steps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it kind of depends. I mean, in this, in this particular iteration, the author and my process, it's been so, so collaborative, which is really great because sometimes, you know, in other collaborations, they kind of just like leave you to do whatever you want. Um, In the, in this iteration, the author and I have really been, you know, sitting down, pouring over, you know, her concepts and it's like, okay you know, for example, Thanksgiving, since we're working on it, you know, we have kind of been doing it by recipe title. And I think this has become kind of a trend in food media and all the the different brands that I pop around at where you, you come up with a title first, like something that sounds just like so delicious. And like, I absolutely need to make that. And then you kind of develop the recipe from there and hope it, hope it works. I mean, you know, you usually have a pretty solid idea. You're not going to like, you know, put turkey and I don't know, chamomile tea. I'm like looking at a flower, you know, it could work, but you know, it's like a, you know, a crispy skinned buttered turkey, you know, that kind of, you go from there. How do you make a recipe from crispy skinned buttered turkey? Um, and so, so, ha- so in- <laughs> has that always been the standard in terms of cookbook recipe development, or does that have to do with clickbait? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I'm actually, I'm a little newer into the world of cookbooks. I've primarily come from digital, which I think has been really, really helpful in terms of knowing what is actually successful with audiences because, you know, book sales, you don't actually know if people who buy the book are cooking the recipes. Whereas, I mean, I guess you don't know if someone clicked on the recipe is making it, but I think you get a pretty um, more clear snapshot, like, oh, well, this, this recipe page got so much traffic and it, you know, got a lot of traffic when we published it. And then it got so much traffic, you know, two days before Thanksgiving, like we know that people are making that to cook it. And we definitely found it a lot of the places I've worked at, you know, with really incredible, you know, audience development teams and SEO teams um, are really diving into those trends to see what people are Googling. And that has often dictated what recipe titles become. And, you know, you see so many different trends in terms of what recipe titles look like. I mean, you know, if you looked at a recipe from 2006, it would be so different than a recipe now. Even if the content itself is quite similar, you'd probably in 2006 see like perfect mashed potatoes. Today, you would see like buttered mashed potatoes with crispy crunchies or something like that. There's a lot of adjectives. There's a lot of like, you can hear the recipe 
in the title. And I think that's because audiences have gotten a lot, a lot more engaged with what uh, the food is. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I mean, <laughs> it is interesting, why, but people it, respond to it. It's interesting to me because mm-hmm. I've been, I mean, first of all, what we're t- discussing here is like the A leagues of cookbook. This is very different than somebody saying, Hey, I've been a cook for a long time. I'm going to do a cookbook on my own. Like you're dealing with high end publishers. Yes. Probably big money advances. Uh, probably book tours and books that are going to be reviewed and sent out to major critics. And what we're hearing from you is this is how it's done with these teams I mean, and this SEO is, experts. This is one way to do it. So the SEO stuff, that's more for digital food media. So yeah. I kind of, I can't, I'm, I'm working in two worlds. I'm working in digital food media. And then I yeah. also do a bit of cookbook publishing work as well. So but, but they yes, do overlap, yeah. right? They and, do. And, and, they do. I mean, there's so much overlap for sure. For sure. So I've been helping a friend of mine out with, uh, or uh, let me put it this way. Without being asked, <laughs> I presented a deck with some recipe changes. Mm-hmm. I, actually, what I pitched to, to him was, let's, let's start doing a brunch because they're not using that, that time period. And, you know, I'm very into food. I'm very into talking to like, award-winning pizza makers. And I read the books. I have a giant collection of, of these cookbooks that have come out within the last few years. So I could talk about the trends in pizza and how pizza is so different. But there are a lot of pizza places that aren't staying up with the times. Mm-hmm. They've been making great pizza for 40 years. But even the way it's presented on the menu, like the way you're talking about the headline or the title of the recipe mm-hmm. in the cookbook I feel the great pizza places, of, of, for the most part, doing that in the title of the pizza. You know, unless part of your hook, uh, uh, Pizzeria Bianco in Los Angeles, is one that's, v- for the most part, very simple. And that's the beauty of the place. Like, there's three sandwiches and there's one salad and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but, you know, the title of the item on the menu has to be thought about. Exactly. I mean, I think you could absolutely make that comparison to restaurants. And I see that myself, um, you know, again, if you went to a restaurant in 2006 or 1982, the type, like the same food could be served today, but the menu item name would be so different. Um, and the description would be different. The way the weight person would describe it would be so different. The wine they pair it with would be so different. And I think you can absolutely draw that comparison to what's going on in the world of food media. It's just, it's so dictated by who the audience is. And I think we're seeing a lot of younger people learning how to cook and becoming restaurant obsessed. And they're driving a lot of the trends. And, you know, you have to keep up with the trends or you'll fall behind. What comes first? Like, is it trends from digital? (laughs) Which I think it is. I think it is too. It is, right? And then you have to bring that that's what's going to drive people to the restaurant. And then they need to feel like they're having an experience at the restaurant. Oh, and I mean, with restaurants, I actually think, I think digital trends influence cookbooks for sure. I think restaurants influence digital. You do? I really do. I think what restaurants are doing today, you'll see published in digital food media in two to seven months. Give me an example, Um, please. I mean, just like in in terms of 
plating in terms of the way a dish is presented. Like I think when I started out in food media quite a while ago, the types of food was what I had been eating in restaurants. So like today, for example, something I'm thinking of that would never have been published on a food media website eight years ago is like a really cool, small vegetable plate. Like it's like a really beautiful piece of cauliflower and it's been like butter basted and maybe somebody threw some anchovies in there and it's just like half a cauliflower and it's charred on the bottom and covered with a pile of herbs or maybe swooshy like tahini and then you put that on the plate and you serve it like I don't see that being published in like everyday food the Martha Stewart magazine that I was reading when I was in high school or middle school or whenever that was out but today that would totally be published in a Bon Appetit a food and wine of food 52 you know that kind of platform because that's what restaurants are serving um, or at least that's that's what I feel like restaurants were serving like two years ago. And people weren't home cooking that way. I think home cooks have gotten a lot more advanced, or at least they are in, you know, I, I'm a coastal person, but I see people, you know, I go to dinner parties at people's houses and I'm like, oh, you're just cooking like you're a restaurant. Right. And maybe that's not the case in, you know, other parts of the country. But I really feel like, I'm seeing, and, and, you know, it's like, where'd you get that recipe? Like, did you see the inspiration at a restaurant? And they're like, oh no, I saw it in, you know, X food publication or X cookbook. But I know that that recipe developer used to work at a restaurant or, Mm. you know, spent a lot of time going out to restaurants while they're an editor at this food publication. Do you think the first season of Chef's Table on Netflix was a game changer? Oh, sure. In that, in that it made these chefs rock stars and the thought that, because there are a lot of chefs that don't operate that way. They're just tradesmen, <laughs> right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I grew up watching the Food Network, so they were, chefs were already kind of celebrities to me, you know, like Rachel Ray and Giada and <laughs> Bobby Flett. Like I was, you know, I thought they were celebrities. And I think today we're like, we're only seeing more of that with, you know, streaming television, like, you know, salt, fat, acid, heat, like it. I love that people who have no idea what, how to cook a chicken know who Samin Nosrat is because they loved watching her show on Netflix. And that, I think there's just, there's been such a democratization of cooking. It's not like the spooky chef wearing a tall hat. It's like a, person out there talking to an olive farmer and, you know, going home and making focaccia. Democratization. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I got you. It wasn't that hard of a word. I got you. Now. <laughs> Sometimes I get a little too <laughs> lofty. No, you're all good, man. Um, so that covers a little bit of recipe development. And, but before we move off that topic, you're mostly, I, I'm guessing, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess not. You're probably, so you, one lane of recipe development is for these cookbooks if someone comes to you. But I guess you have to do that for these digital platforms as well. So you're developing res, 
recipes oh, there. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, yes, I consider myself a, a freelance recipe developer. So obviously sometimes I'm lucky enough to be, you know, included in, in a cookbook project and that's very exciting, but that's a usually a pretty short term project. Um, the bulk of my work is absolutely digital recipe development and, and recipe testing and other, other work like that, which we can talk more about if you're interested, but yes, uh, definitely yeah. contribute to, uh, across many types of platforms that produce recipes. All right. So let's jump to recipe testing mm-hmm. in your case. Why are you, what are you testing a recipe for in your case? Sure. So I guess it's helpful to explain what recipe testing is, you know, for your listeners um, who may not know. And it's sometimes the language kind of overlaps on itself. So like, for example, I think I said, I'm testing Thanksgiving. I'm developing these Thanksgiving recipes. I am creating those recipes myself. But eventually after I finish those recipes and I'm like, they're good to go. The next stage would be for someone else to test those developed recipes. When it's not my recipe that I've developed, I am often a recipe tester. Sometimes they're called a cross-tester. And that means that person, that recipe tester, is taking a recipe that's been developed and, you know, hopefully it's been made more than once um, by the recipe developer. The recipe developer knows it works, but they have made it in one kitchen, theoretically, you know, on their, you know electric burner, their gas burner, their super professional oven, or their like teeny tiny Ricky Ding Brooklyn oven that, you know, they were timing it, but you know, maybe they got distracted while they were developing. So it's my job as the tester to make it a, in a different kitchen. So what is, you know, does it still take five to seven minutes for that sauce to reduce on my stove? Or did it take more like 10 to 12 minutes on my stove? Did the nuts actually turn a deeply golden brown in the time that you said, or were they like totally burnt by the time you said, um, and and so on and so forth. And I think that the mark of a good recipe tester is someone who knows enough about cooking to kind of catch, not necessarily mistakes, but to catch, you know, things that aren't quite working and resolve the problem in the moment. It requires a lot of quick thinking because, you know, for example, like what if there's a typo, you know, maybe the developer just like a slip of a finger and they wrote, you know, bake for 67 minutes instead of 47 minutes. It would be my job as the recipe tester, not to bake it for 67 minutes and be like, well, it burnt. It's wrong. (laughs) It would be my job to be, you know, really paying very close attention and being like, you know what, mine was actually quite done at, you know, 47 minutes you know, maybe you want to take a look at that timing again. And, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, wow, that was a typo. But sometimes it's also like, oh, wow, it really did take 67 minutes in my oven. I think we need to make it again and find out where, you know, diagnose the problem here. Like, is it, is it the oven temperature? Was that wrong? Or is my oven broken? You know, it's, um, it's a lot of, it's kind of like jazz (laughs) in a way. It's like, there's like 15 different layers going on at once. But yeah, I do a lot of recipe testing for, yeah. Oh, well, you might, you might've just almost <laughs> gone to that answer. Who, who's hiring you to do it? Yeah. So I do a lot of recipe testing for a number of digital and print publications, primarily um, Bon Appetit, Epicurious and uh, Food 52 and Kitchen as well. And then I also do recipe testing for cookbooks. Wow. That's pretty cool, man. 
Yeah, there's a lot of food moving in and out of the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, and it's just your home kitchen. I am lucky enough when I'm testing for Bon Appetit and Epicurious to be working out of their test kitchen. Cool. So I get, you know, a little bit more space to move around. But usually for everyone else and for the books, it's my home kitchen right over there. See me, Denny. <laughs> and you're also a, a food stylist. Yes, I do a bit of food styling as well. So tell, tell us what that is. So, so food styling is really just making the food you see in photos, be that a photo in a print magazine and a digital publication or in a cookbook look nice. And that definition has also changed so, so much over the past many years. I mean, again, it's like, if you look at 20, 30 years ago, it looked, the food looked so perfect. It was like, we have to make sure that every single little crumb is you know, cleaned up and the frosting swoops exactly perfectly. And if there's a fork, it needs to be very clean. Today, I think people have let go a little bit, at least in editorial, commercial food styling work is very different. And I, I don't usually do commercial food styling work. I do more, you know, styling and assistant styling work for editorial, which is it's for home cooks. It should look like it's going to look when you make it yourself at home. I mean, you know, it'll look a little nicer. There will be like, you know, the extra cute lettuce and like, you know, the extra beautiful, like, you know, soup of sour cream. But for the most part, it's really about. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's a, it's a, I like to think of food styling as a, another stage of information for yeah. a home cook. But if you are the head stylist, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Are you, I'm going to ask all these questions. Are you, are you taking the, the photograph? Are you, no, are you cooking yeah, the food from the beginning? Are you yeah. cooking the, so that it's then presented and a professional photographer then comes in? Yeah. So usually on a professional set, there is a food stylist, usually a food stylist assistant, a prop stylist, maybe a prop stylist assistant. Um, and and then makeup. That's the hair and makeup. That's, hair the, that's and makeup. the food and prop stylist. And then a, and then a professional photographer. And so you know. But then if, if it's me styling something at home, I'm the I'm doing all of it. But officially, as a food stylist, you are only touching the food. And oftentimes, as the lead stylist, you're judging the food on set, but your assistant is doing all the cooking. Which is, I think, where I got a lot of my experience because that's like kind of how it works. I imagine in the film world as well, like, you know, you start out in the camera department and you're like lugging all the gear and you're pressing buttons and you're moving things, you're cleaning things. But then by the time you're like the DP, you're not you're really ta- talking. <laughs> you're talking to the director. You're talking to the director and then you're taking that information to right. the people that are going to do the judging. Right. So, so I think yeah. that it's pretty, pretty, uh, um, comparable in the styling world, particularly yeah. in food styling, like as an assistant, I'm like at the market at 7am taking pictures of lettuce, lugging it back in my like little granny car, taking it on the train or, you know, a car, if there's a nice budget and then taking it to the 
set and I'm cooking the food and then giving it to the food stylist and they are doing that final beautiful zhuzhing. And everyone I've worked for has been a little bit different. Some of the stylists I've worked for are very hands-on and they want to be cooking right alongside you. And then others are sort of like, hand it to me when it's done. And I think that, you know, it's, I don't really think there's any, like I learned a lot more from the people that were like, hand it to me when it's done. But it's, it's, it's really just making, but I think that that is all the more emphasis on the fact that it is a person cooking the food. And that's what stylists do. Like the recipe developers rarely, if ever, even on set. Mm-hmm. Why would you take a picture of the lettuce at the market? Is it reference? <laughs> yeah. Or, so no, I'm, I'm being serious. I, yeah, or is it, no, or is it to be question. published later <laughs> as one of the steps? No, no. So that would be, that would be part of like the, the assistance work, like, I'm sending that photo to the food stylist, to the lead stylist in advance to be like, do we like this lettuce or are you looking for something a little more like darker green? Or do you want like a, you know, if you're looking at radicchio, there's like 14 different shades of purple. It could be, um, and it's kind of, it could really affect the way the photo looks. And, you know, the food stylist is like, well, I know the props are going to be this, this, and this. So, you know, if we're using a dark green tablecloth, maybe we don't want dark green lettuce. We want like a lighter lettuce. And so it's, it's really a, it's it's keeping it's keeping your eye on a, on a lot of different aspects. Even if your main role is the food, you're still thinking about the props. You're still thinking about the lighting. Yeah, how, it's interesting. How, <laughs> how do you think AI is going to affect the future of food styling? Oh my gosh, food <laughs> styling. I'm less worried about. I am very worried about AI getting involved in recipe writing. Okay, um, before we go there. <laughs> Because I have, I take my own photos mm-hmm. for my bread company, and I struggle with the tone of my photos, and they're all over the place. I don't have like you see some of these food like Food Fifty Two. It's it's consistently pro mm-hmm. and amazing, and and mine <laughs> isn't. I could go out of my way and try to do that all the time. That takes a lot of time, and yeah. quite honestly, I'm a one man band, so I don't have it. But recently, I've been taking decent photos of the product and having AI create the background. Wow. I don't know anything about that. I'm so interested. I'm like, my, my partner spends a lot of time messing around with, with AI. He, he, works, he works in film and he has often sometimes found it helpful when like storyboarding or like sending examples, like, um, like, you know, send me a photo of a van in a field with, you know, two children. It's like, you used to have to like, see if that was on Getty or something. And now you can, you can put it into AI, right? Like that's Check this out. We have a pitch that we're taking out as writers and we wanted to put an example of who we'd cast Mm -hmm. and he would be playing a little league baseball coach. So we said, Topher Grace as a little league baseball coach. And it created it. And it created it. That's and we use it. In, wild. It's crazy. And we use yeah. it in our pitch deck. That's awesome. I mean, I can see that being so, so helpful for pitch decks and yeah. for like storyboarding. And, and that's where I do think that that could be helpful. Like even in the development process for me, sometimes I'll be sketching something out. Actually, I like have an art background. So like that to me feels very normal to be like, sketching what I want the plate to look like. But if I didn't know how to draw, I don't know if that would be like how I would get there. And I think AI could be very helpful in that sense where you're like, okay, maybe I want the lettuce 
on the side and I want, you know, chicken legs or do I want a whole roast chicken? And you can kind of look at the two differences and see which plate might look nicer. I can see that informing styling, but not necessarily replacing styling. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I can see how your art background, it's all related to everything you do, even though it seems on the surface that you're a food person, Mm -hmm. but it is all related, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, I like went to liberal arts college and I spent a lot of time, right. I was, you know, I studied costume and scenic design and art history and I am, you know, ostensibly doing nothing with that, but I'm not, I'm do, I'm using it all the time. I mean, college Uh taught me how to write. I spent so much time, you know, thinking visually and that's what I do every day. I write and I think visually. So I, I don't consider that any time wasted, but it is a it is a funny fact that I am absolutely doing nothing with my sewing machine. So <laughs> how good are you at art history? <laughs> I mean, now so much of art history was um it, art history was half memorization and half reading comprehension. And so I am not deeply immersed in reading art history theory right now but i have to say i have one of my one of my favorite art history texts ways of seeing is on the top of my cookbook pile over there because i do i do look back at it so Please, i'm going to ask you a question and i'd like you <laughs> okay. to answer it with a question all right which pop artist <laughs> was famous for tracing original advertisements and then silk screening them onto canvas to create screen prints that Andy Warhol? Yeah, I took it from your, one of your <laughs> that one writings. Is my yes. That's what I thought. <laughs> oh my gosh. That was one of my that was one of my first freelance food media pieces. Thank God you didn't get it wrong. I took it right I know. from you. <laughs> <laughs> That's really fun. I was like, I've heard this before, I think. That's it's actually funny. that yeah. really cool picture of a hamburger. <laughs> yes, I do remember that. That yeah. was that was a real treat for me. And, you know, I think I made, gosh, I think I made $75 on it. And I probably spent 25 hours, like, developing, like, six different recipes and pouring my heart and soul into, like, a probably a, you know, 700-word piece. And it's hilarious that that is just not the way food media works anymore. But I really love that piece. Yeah. That, like, remains I love so it too. special to me. <laughs> I actually love it. I mean, you, you love it probably because it, it helped launch you. But, yeah. you know, I thought it was really cool. I actually Thank learned some you. things from it. So Thank you. I'm glad. That's what I always hope to do when I when I do a feature like that. I, ho- I want it to mean something. I don't want to just put more words out onto the internet for, for the sake of putting words out onto the internet. I kind of want it to... Uh, to, yeah. to do a little bit more. So I was really into music in high school. My father was a musician. And I just blindly kept going down a path in college. I studied mm-hmm. business and music, not knowing what I could do as a career. Mm-hmm. Everyone, I was surrounded by people that wanted to be music teachers. And I didn't want that. <laughs> and I, don't, I was kind of scared, but not overly scared. And little by little, one thing led to another. By 25, I was entrenched in working with stand-up comedians. Mm-hmm. But again, I didn't even know that was a business. Yeah, I felt the same way about food. I didn't know what food media was. Food media was like, I don't even know if food media was a term people were using 10 years ago. And like, 
15 years ago when I was applying to college, like, like I'll meet people today and they're like, I'm a food media major at NYU. What? Like, <laughs> if only I'd known that that were a thing, but it wasn't a thing when I was going to college. It was like the blogosphere I, was like just starting out. I would in argue the food world. <laughs> you, you were better off not knowing. Yeah, I do. I, I actually, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and, you know, I'll, I'll meet someone who is like, you know, a food media major at NYU and has like 8 billion followers on TikTok and two cookbook deals. And I'm like, Rrr. but at the same time, I think I had such a foundation in another world. Um, yeah. And it, it really just taught me so much that I, you know, am not using every day, but also am. And I think that I'm, you know, I, I think I'm doing just fine. Everyone yeah. has imposter syndrome, but I learned, I learned so much about what I wanted to do by not studying it in school. And if I had been a food media major writing essays about food media when I was in college, I might've been like, I don't want to do this. Um, and, and maybe that's everybody kind of has to figure out you know, do what they don't want to do before they figure out what they want to do. But for for me, at least, I think it was it was very helpful to, you know, be giving tours at the Smith College Museum of Art and thinking I was going to go like work in the costume department at the Met and then discover this kind of unfamiliar and newly burgeoning world of, you know, to use the term food blogs very lightly. It was it was a new venture. And I was very drawn to it and, you know, started my own food blog and kind of used that as a way to get experience because I didn't have, you know, fancy magazine internships when I was in college. I wrote on my food blog and I, you know, worked other jobs. Um, and then Wait, you, you yeah. did a, a food blog while you were in college? You yes, created I one? did. I did. Yeah. That was kind of how I got my, my start. I was very, like very self-taught. I, I, you know, grew up cooking. I, I, you know, worked very minimally and poorly as like a barista in <laughs> a cafe and, you know, um, but I don't have proper formal restaurant training. I, I ended up when I started working in food media, I was lucky enough to be offered a professional development stipend at a company that I was working for full time. So I went to the ICC at night and did culinary techniques, which is kind of like the first level of culinary school. It's like not as expensive as full-blown culinary school, but I learned, you know, like the kind of the, the introduction to French culinary techniques. And then most of my work has still been just kind of me obsessing over it at home and uh, right. pouring over cookbooks and, and really learning from other like established uh, cookbook authors. Well, once you're yeah. in the field, you're able to network, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And find mentors and people, and you're gonna yes. you're gonna learn. I've been so grateful to work with, I mean, many many super talented people, but to work very closely with a handful of people in this industry who are so so talented, um, and have you know given me opportunities to make my own further connections and. That's why I always like to talk to people who might reach out to me about how to make it in food media because I wouldn't be where I am today if other people hadn't answered my cold emails and, and given me a shot because I didn't yeah. have any other connections in this industry. And this is a very, very relationships-based 
connection-based industry. I mean, like you could make, you could make that argument for any industry, but I think a lot of food media is like, oh, my buddy knows how to do that. So I'm going to hire them, which makes perfect sense, but it's very hard to break in if you're not like a TikTok celebrity, I guess. Oh, okay. (laughs) I mean, I think you are playing at the, in the major leagues of food and, and just like in film and TV, major leagues, you know, it's, it's all hard to break in. It's just hard. It is. It but is. It, there's, a, there's a certain level. Mm-hmm. I, I do often think that if I went to film school, mm-hmm. I don't know what would have happened. I'm not saying I wouldn't have done anything, but like, because I didn't know what I didn't know, I just ended up in this weird path. My music path led me to representing musicians and then comedians, which led me into mm-hmm. film and TV. Now, I had I kind of beautiful. Yeah. If I went to film school, I think I would have like got a production assistant job on a film set and my life would be completely different. And also totally, there's nothing wrong with going to film school at all. Yeah. But then a lot of the people there have the same mindset of, all right, we're going to compete for those production assistant jobs. Right. And that's exactly what I would say to anyone who's like, Oh, should I go to culinary school? I'm like, if you can afford it and you have the time, why not? But also there are a million other different ways to make it if your end goal is working in food media, like if your goal is being a recipe developer, I don't think you need to go to culinary school. I think there are, you can go to culinary school. And if you, you know, if it's, if it's in your, um, Mm -hmm. if it's in your purview, go for it, but it's not the only way to, to be successful for sure. The one you went to was a six month program. Is that the one? Yes. Yeah. I believe so. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was just incredible that, you know, the the company that I worked for sadly ended up going under because they ran out of money, mm. but they did offer wonderful professional development classes to their employees while we were employed. Thus, so they I ran was, out of money. They ran out of money. So, you know, whatever. It's, uh, I'm very grateful for it, even if it didn't really, even if it uh, doesn't show the best business acumen. Yeah, man. I feel like I could talk to you forever, but... I'm going to ask a couple more questions. So in terms of making food on a budget, you got to have balance. I think uh, health and nutrition along with the eye candy, or are you going mostly with eye candy? And, and can you talk us through an example of one recipe on a budget that you love? Sure. So I'm so glad you brought up cooking on a budget. It's very important to me. It, you know, there's, I'm certainly not the first person to do budget recipes, um, but I think I go about them a little bit differently than, you know, I'm going to Costco and I'm shopping for the cheapest vat of ground beef that I can find and take it home to feed my seven children. I don't, I'm, I'm not that, I live, I live in a household of two. I, we don't have children. It's just, it's just um, me and I have, you know, a, a fairly refined palate. You know, I like to eat good food. So when I think about budget cooking, I was very frustrated when I was Googling like, you know, cheap recipes when I was, you know, living on my own on a budget in New York, which is very expensive and even more expensive now. And I wanted to eat the food that I was eating at restaurants, but I couldn't afford to spend, you know, $17 on a plate of cabbage much as I would love to, because it's delicious. So I, but cabbage is a very inexpensive (laughs) ingredient. And, you know, you're obviously at a restaurant, you're paying for the staff, you're paying for the rent of the restaurant and blah, blah, blah. There's like nothing wrong with that. However, if you're on a budget, 
I like to approach recipes a little bit like, you know, cool using scare quotes. And I often have found that that means cooking vegetarian. And so you brought up, you brought up health and nutrition. I, I really go very back and forth. And if we had another two and a half hours, I would go off on a tangent about, you know, diet culture and food media. Um, but that's not what we're here to do. But I would say that by nature of vegetarian cooking, it's often just as nutritionally dense as a recipe with meat, but it's a lot cheaper. So, you know, the recipe that immediately popped into my head when you said, give me an example. So I had a column at Food 52 called Nickel and Dime when I was an editor there. And it was all about making dinner for four people for $10 or less. And so the one that immediately popped into my head is bean scampi, which is uh, kind of... It's on my uh, list. Is that on your list? <laughs> that was one of my favorites. I, if you, I hope you make it and let me know what you think. So that is treating beans, like big beans, like butter beans or... Um, what are they, aren't they called... Um, Oh my God. They're called Corona beans, like, <laughs> which is very fun. It like spooky COVID words, but just giant beans, treating those beans or any other white bean really like a shrimp. So like, if you're familiar with shrimp scampi, it's, <laughs> you know, oftentimes it's shrimp cooked in a very garlicky, buttery sauce and often served over pasta with a lot of parsley. And so what, the way that I did it for my nickel and dime column is I cooked a pound of beans, dry beans, which are already like be, canned beans are already a cheap ingredient. Dry beans are even cheaper. And if you have the time, you know, sometimes it takes a little bit longer to cook dry beans, but you can soak them in advance, like soak them when you're at work and then come back and cook them. It'll take about an hour. It is so cool if you cook these big beans with so much garlic and salt and olive oil they cook down into a really flavorful broth that really seasons the beans and kind of acts like that expensive wine. Um, you use white wine vinegar instead of white wine, which is you know cheaper and you always have it in the pantry. And then those beans kind of act like little shrimp. And shrimp is like a million dollars a pound in Brooklyn. It's maybe more like maybe more like $27 a pound, but beans are like $2 a pound. And there's a lot more in a pound of beans than a pound of shrimp. And that recipe tastes like shrimp scampi. I mean, obviously not exactly like shrimp yeah. scampi, oh, but it's it is like, I think seven or $8. Do you and do it over pasta? Over pasta. Yep. A pound of linguine. And that's quite, quite hefty. Um, but it's very, it's very delicious. <laughs> and it is, you know, I you, wonder feel if, good, you feel good when you eat it. And that's all I'm going for. I wonder if I could do a, a bean, Paul boy inspired oh, by this. You should try that. I bet that would be so good. I'm actually looking for a vegetarian sandwich to present. Interesting. Ooh. I also really like, um, I did, if you want to look at another vegetarian sandwich, I did a recipe for food 52 quite a while ago with tofu. It's called a tofu steak sandwich and you freeze the tofu. And when you freeze tofu, it totally changes in texture. It gets kind of chewy, like meat. And it's a pretty cool vibe. Do you ever work with Satan? Sometimes. Sometimes I do. I am still recovering from a terrible uh, dining hall related, Satan related incident really? in college. Yes. I was, I mean, it was very lucky to have a, a vegan and vegetarian dining hall on campus, but bless their hearts. They, you know, weren't doing the best 
work with, you know, they were doing the best that they could do, but it was really just um, one of the most unpleasant Satan experiences I've ever had. I know that Satan is delicious, but I'm still not over it. This awful meal I once had. Uh, so I do, I tend to do more with tofu and beans. Got it. Okay. <laughs> a little trauma there. Just a little, just a little um, vegetarian trauma. <laughs> all right. We'll wrap it up with this question. Can you tell me what is one of your most memorable meals, who you were with, what you had, and why it was so memorable? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I would probably take it back to, um, to Taylor Ham. I grew up, my, my mom cooked a lot of our meals growing up, even though she worked a full-time job and was very busy, but it was very important to her to like either make us breakfast or make us dinner. If not both, like usually it was one or the other. She was, had a lot to do, but one of her specialties was um, Taylor ham and sharp cheddar cheese on an English muffin. And I would just eat that with my mom and my sister. Wow. And that was probably like when we would have uh like really just like I don't even think we realized how special it was at the time. But I think that really formed all of like it 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 was spoke to all of us loving food. And even if we didn't really talk, well, you know, we were grumpy, it was the morning, whatever. We just still have the ability to sit down and eat breakfast together. And it's a nice little community moment. Um, and I think that I still think of that today as one of my favorite ways to be with a person is just to kind of share a meal, even if you're not, you know, having the most fantastic conversation in the entire world, even if you're just like eating Taylor ham and cheese sandwiches. It's just a great way to, you know, connect with someone. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. I should, I should change the podcast name to bread with the people. I like that. I like that a lot. Instead of for the people. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it's been we such a for the people. Yeah. It, it's been such a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. You too. Maybe we could do it again. Cause I do feel like I could talk to you forever. Thank you so much. It was great to chat with you. Likewise. This episode of bread for the people was brought to you by side hustle bread, long Island's handcrafted artisanal bread company. Side Hustle Bread is a family-run business that's bringing the neighborhood feel back to Long Island one loaf at a time. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to head on over to iTunes and rate and review this episode. Reviewing and rating is the most effective way to help us grow our audience. This episode was produced by Milestone TV and Film. I'm your host, Jim Serpico. Blessed be the bread, everyone. Bread for the people.